Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. So let's thank our team for leading us out on a fall break Sunday. Man, we're so grateful that you are here. And whether you are in the house or you are uh, engaging with us online, we are so glad uh, that you made it out today and together that we can make much of Jesus. I know a lot of our folks are watching uh, from the beach today or on vacation. Next time, take me with you, right? But we're glad you are having that time and uh, that you've joined us even on vacation this week. And, uh, and I, I'm telling you what, with great anticipation, looking forward to what the Lord's going to do in our midst today. I pray that's how you come every Sunday. I pray you come every Sunday praying for and anticipating God to do something incredible in our midst. Because I tell you what, that's what He desires. Now, I want to start off today by, by talking through one of the biggest questions of sports. I mean, one of the, one of the greatest questions that generates endless debates and hours of arguments and speculations, statistics, so on and so forth. And that is this, who is the GOAT? Who is the greatest of all time? I mean, that's a question that is asked often and is talked about too much, right? I mean, you could go from right here. In basketball, is it LeBron? Is it Michael Jordan? Is it, is it Kobe? Who's the greatest uh, of all time? And without question, it's Michael Jordan. But anyway, there's a question there. Who's the greatest of all time? Man, there's the, the greatest all-time quarterback. I mean, there's Tom Brady, and he's 73 and still playing. That's pretty incredible. But then there's Peyton Manning. I mean, how does it get any better when you're sitting in Tennessee uh, than Peyton Manning? There's a lot of debates, and... Who's the greatest of all time? Man, we're fixing to see a great debate take place this coming Saturday, aren't we? I'm just praying we get the Alabama team of last night coming up on this next Saturday. A great rivalry of all time between Alabama and Tennessee. It doesn't have to just be in, in the sports world as well. Watch this. How about a little Debbie Swiss cake versus a Twinkie, right? Then which one's the greatest of all time? You see, this question and this argument can be found in any arena of life. But you know, last week, Jesus kind of helped settle the debate on who is the greatest of all time. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, truly I tell you, you'll remember this, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And so we asked the question, and really made the case last week, is what made John the Baptist, as far as it is men, the greatest of all time. And we kind of came to this conclusion that it was the very ethos in which and by which he lived his life. In John chapter 3, verse 30, this incredible formula that, that he, meaning Jesus, must be greater and I must become less. Therein lies where we find in the Gospel of John, therein lies the key to greatness. He must become greater and I must become less. But, but surely, greatness is more than just coming up with a really good quote like John the Baptist did. Surely, greatness is living out uh, more of Jesus and less of me. Or in John's situation, more of Jesus and just less of John. Well, here's what we begin to find. Not only did John the Baptist have a really good quote, but John the Baptist 
lived it out. And it's evident in two important areas of his life. You ready? In his works and in his words. After all, here's what we know to be true. That the counsel of scripture tells us that our words matter and that our works mean something. And so today, just for a few minutes, we are going to explore John's greatness a little more. And here's where we begin. You ready? That more of Jesus and less of John was evident early even in the womb. Was evident early even in the womb. Now, in Luke chapter 1, we find that John's mama, Elizabeth, was pregnant some six, weeks, six months before Mary, the mother of Jesus. Both women are pregnant at this point in the text. And now I want you to catch an incredible encounter that takes place here in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready, hurried into town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Remember, they're related. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, watch this. The baby leaped in her womb. John the Baptist leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. Think of it. The first person to recognize, to rejoice, and to celebrate Jesus was an unborn child in the womb by the name of John. Hey, can I just by the way, can I remind you that clumps of cells cannot recognize, rejoice, and leap? Hey, can I remind you that mere human tissue cannot recognize, rejoice, and leap? Only an unborn child bearing the image of God with the breath of God in them can recognize, rejoice, and leap. And so no matter the lies of the media, the culture, or politicians, what remains still true to this day is something found simply uh, a message found as simple in a child's book. You ready? Horton, here's a who. A person's a person no matter how small. And we see that in the life of John. You see, even in the womb, John's greatness is tied up in Jesus. That's where his greatness is found. And even in the womb, he made much of Jesus. But here's where we camp out today, and that is this, that, that more of Jesus and less of John was also evident in his work as well as his words. You see, John chapter 1 kind of spells it out for us. Now, the Pharisees who had been sent to question um, John, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, which is the promised one, nor Elijah. Remember, a lot of people are looking for Elijah the prophet, nor the prophet, Deuteronomy 18, 18, the promised one to come. John says this, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. In this text, we continue building on a conversation John the Baptist is having with some religious leaders who were concerned about his rise in popularity. John the Baptist earlier, we tackled this last week, and freely in the text admitted, hey, I'm not the promised Savior, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. Rather, he simply summarized this word as this, I baptize with water. I baptize with water. You see, John the Baptist, his work was twofold. You ready? He was making way for Jesus, and he was making much for Jesus. 
Hey, can I tell you the end all of all of our work? Can I summarize, man, our very existence in Christ? You ready? To make way for Jesus and to make much for Jesus. To make much of him. That's the summary of our life in Christ. And we see that in the life of John. And and by the way, that is what we are tasked with. You see, one aspect of John's work was baptizing. Now, before we get to John's baptism here in the text, hey, can I remind you of what baptism is today? Baptism post the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That baptism is an an outward sign of the very inward change Jesus made in us when he saved us. You see, that's what baptism today is all about. It is that first step of obedience where followers of Christ paint a picture of the gospel with their bodies. Man, I love when we get the chance to baptize. And, and you know what? To, to God be the glory. I mean, this year so far, we've baptized 60 or 70 people. Helped them take their next step of faith. In, in, in a world where many churches aren't baptizing anybody, God has been so gracious. But I love when somebody comes and they sit in the water. If we're down by the river, they're standing in the water. And, and then being above the water, just part of their body, is a picture of their life before Christ. And then, through that step of obedience, they're then put under the water, which is is a a picture of them identifying with Jesus and the cross and his grave. Then, praise God, we got most everyone back out of that water, right? Brought them back up out of the water, which was a picture of that newness of life that only Christ can bring. Hey, baptism is beautiful because it allows the believer to paint a picture of the gospel with their body. Hey, let me remind you, baptism doesn't save you. It's Jesus' job. Baptism doesn't wash your sins away. That's what Christ did on the cross. Baptism doesn't say it is Christ alone that saves and brings new life. But baptism is what Christ has asked us to do when he has saved us. Hey, for some reason in the church, baptism has become an option for the believer, and it has never been an option. It has always been a matter of obedience. Hey, hey, by the way, have you taken your next step of faith, have you been biblically baptized? I mean, like Christ, put under the water after placing your faith and trust in Jesus. If the answer to that is no, hey, we can help fix that. We can help you take your next step of faith. Now, back to John's baptism. Hey, it was, it was different. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, here's how it was different. Not only did he baptize with water, but watch this. I baptize you with water for re- Repentance. You see, John's baptism at its heart was preparing people's hearts to confront and to confess their sins because their Savior had come. They were taking part in a spiritual cleansing which was evidenced by being baptized in water, thus making a commitment to follow the commands of God in anticipation for the coming King. We catch a glimpse of this again in Matthew. It says this, that confessing their sins in Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. In John chapter 1, verse 31, I love this, but the reason I came, John the Baptist would say, baptizing with waters was that he might be revealed to Israel. You see, John's baptism of repentance pointed people to Jesus. 
And I want you to know that Baptism Church is important, that Jesus identified himself with us sinners through his baptism. You see, sinners whose sin he would ultimately bear, he identified with us, thus he can make us righteous before God. The Father, have you taken your next step of baptism? If not, next step's tent right after this service. And we'd love to get you signed up. I heard a story from a pastor in West Texas, Pastor Jim Dennison. While he was in college, he served as a summer missionary in East Malaysia. While there, he attended a, a small church among the village. And at one of the church's worship services, a teenage girl came forward to announce her decision to follow Christ and to be baptized. Well, during the service, Dennison noticed that there was some, some worn-out luggage that was propped up against the wall outside the church. And Dennison looked at the pastor and said, Hey, what? Where did the luggage come from? Why, why is that, that luggage there? And the pastor pointed to the girl who had just been baptized and told Dennison, her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. So she brought her luggage. Hey, can I share something with you, church? If you've not taken your next step of baptism, hey, you don't need your luggage. Just faith in the Lord Jesus. Take your next step. You see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, uh, John's words we find are not only those in his works of baptism, but his words, his message, are not really a cotton candy type message, but a message of conviction. Watch this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hey, what a tough word that we don't want to hear a whole lot about. Repent. Repentance is not a, an easy message, but, but hear me, church, it's a needed message. Re repentance, the changing of the direction of your heart and your mind and your life away from sin and self and, and towards God. We desperately need repentance to come alive again in the church today. We need a change of heart, a change of mind concerning our own sin. Oh, that God would give us a distaste, a disdain, a dissatisfaction over our sin so that our sin is nothing but disgusting to us and that Jesus is our greatest delight. Why? Well, John would answer because the kingdom of heaven is here, for the king of heaven has clothed himself in flesh and come down to save the world. So church, our response, repent. Repent of sin. For not only is the kingdom of heaven come, but the king of heaven has come. In a book entitled The Christian Century, Lloyd H. Stiffen told the story of how King Frederick II, an 18th century king of Prussia, was visiting a prison of his in Berlin. The inmates, as he walked down the, the block, would begin to shout out to him to try to prove to him just how innocent they were, how they were unjustly imprisoned, all except for one the king took notice. You see, there was one who sat quietly in a corner 
while all the rest protested their innocence. And seeing him there, oblivious to the commotion, the king asked this man what he was in there for. And he said, armed robbery, your majesty. And the king asked, were you guilty? The prisoner said, yes, sir. I entirely deserve my punishment. And thus the king gave an order to the guard, release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all these innocent people. Our repentance of sin, our owning up to, and our moving away from our sin is the only appropriate response to the grace and the goodness and the mercy of our great God and King. Church, repent. We need repentance. You see, John's greatness was not only seen in his works like baptism and and pointing people to Jesus, all but his words. Speaking of Jesus, I love what John said here in John chapter 1, verse 27, that he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Hey, can I just share something with you? Feet in the first century were just nasty. After a long, dry, dusty day traveling roadways chock full of animal dung and dirt, sandals were dirty, not Even disciples touched the sandals of their master. That was the job of the lowest and the most lowly of slaves. In fact, in in the Babylonian Talmud, some Jewish writings and laws, it is written this. All acts of labor that a slave performs for his master, a disciple performs for his master, except for removing his shoe. Removing the, the sandals. Hey, hey, listen, that wasn't the job of a disciple. That was the job of a slave. And here John says, Jesus, how great you are, how less I am. I'm not even worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy of the lowest of slaves. I I can't even untie your sandals. You see, Jesus was greater. John was less. And hear me, his words proved it. His words proved it. Later on, John would give this testimony in the Gospel of John chapter 1. Then John gave this testimony. I I saw the Spirit come down from heaven. Now he's describing Jesus' baptism and as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. Let me just say this. John knew of Jesus. That they were, they were related. But here's the deal. We're not sure when John was convinced that Jesus was the promised one to come. But we're not, Scripture doesn't tell us that when John became fully convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but we seek some convincing evidences here. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And watch what John says. I have seen and I have testified that this is God's chosen one, speaking of Jesus. You ready? Jesus' baptism convinces John that Jesus is the Savior promised by God in the Old Testament. Not sure when John was convinced, but we know by this moment, Jesus' baptism, he was. 
Hey, by the way, again here in John chapter 1, we find a pretty incredible teaching moment concerning the trinity of God, the plurality of one, our triune God. Because it's here that we see this, that, that God is speaking, that the Holy Spirit is descending, and that Jesus is getting baptized. Let me put it this way, you ready? That it is here. That we find that God the Father spoke up, the Holy Spirit came down, and Jesus went under the water. You see, it would be Jesus' baptism that this forerunner, John, would pass the torch to the frontrunner, Jesus. You know what happens to us a lot of times in the church? We forget that we're the forerunners and not the frontrunners. So there's more of me and less of Jesus. John never confused it. Thus his greatness. He was just the forerunner. Jesus was the frontrunner. More of Jesus and less of John. John would say, I have seen and testified that this is God's chosen one. This title, God's chosen one, it, it encompassed and it embodied over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus that he f- fulfilled with his life and his death and his resurrection. Time and time again, John's words and his works screamed, more of Jesus and less of me. Hey, can I ask you something? How do your words, how does your work measure up? Do do your words and and do my words, do your works and, and my works, do they... Do they reveal that we're really bought into this whole more of Jesus and and less of me talk? You see, words matter. And our work, our work is important. The Apostle Paul would write this speaking of words in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk, we're going to go back to that word unwholesome, come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Uh, The Greek word translated here unwholesome means this, rotten or foul. It was used to describe fruits and vegetables that sat on the stand a little too long. If you're anything like me, they were in the refrigerator too long. And before you know it, they're, they're just rotten and they're just no good for anybody. That's the word he uses so that vulgar humor, uh, dirty jokes, foul language is a reminder are not fit for the child of God. And by the way, not just our words that we speak, social media posts, text, and the like. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 verse 14 that the sinner's mouth is full of cursing and of bitterness. Our words matter. You see, John was able to make much of Jesus with his words because he had already made much of Jesus in his heart. You see, it was more Jesus and less of John. Here, you ready? With our words, we either crown Jesus or we crucify him. With our words, we either validate who Jesus is or we invalidate him in the hearts and minds of others. You see, John made much of Jesus with his words. Now, I want to say this, but not only his words, his works. 
We see it all through the Gospel of John. Hey, can I share this? You don't have to baptize like John to make much of Jesus with your work. Hey, by the way, I pray that before you die, you'll get the joy of baptizing somebody. I pray this, that, that you so love and led somebody to Jesus that you get the joy as a brother or sister in Christ to baptize them. Because remember here at Connect Church, we are convinced that baptism isn't just left up to John or the pastor of a church, but that baptism is great commission work, suitable for every believer. So I pray one day that you get to baptize somebody. But you know what? You don't have to baptize like John. To make much of Jesus in your work. You see, you can, you can be a builder, a beautician, you can be a broadcaster, a, a businessman, a banker, a block layer, a brick mason. You can be a, a brother, a beloved son, or someone's best friend. You can, you can buy stocks, you can bake goods, you can bag groceries, you can bandage wounds, you can be a, boo, a board member or a boot maker. Go stages west. And you can still glorify God in your work. Hey, no matter your personality, no matter your gifting, your vocation, your location, your inclination, the call of every believer is that of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You ready? Your, work, your words matter and your work means something. And those are two areas that are most impacted by more of Jesus and less of me. You see, it's with our work that we either bring glory to Jesus or we glorify ourselves. John's slogan, he must become greater and I must become less, was more than just a good quote. It is how John made way for and made much of Jesus with his words and his work. We must strive for such greatness. Hey, can I share with you? I don't have to be the goat. You know, I'm so far from being the, the greatest of all time in anything. But I want to be great in Jesus. And I want to be great for Jesus. I want to make much of him with my words and in my work as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a pastor, and as a member of this community. Hey, can I ask you to do something, believer? Let's take a little inventory this morning. Do your words. And does your work make much of Jesus? Or do they make much of you? Do they make much of Jesus? Or do they make much of you? I, I want to close by giving... One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus by John the Baptist found in our text here. I want you to listen as Jesus would come around the river. It says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And listen to what he said. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You read that in today's eyes, you're like, did John just call Jesus a barnyard animal? Like, are them fighting words even in the first century? No, John knew full well what he was saying. You see, lambs played an important part in that day in both worship 
and in the worship services. For instance, in one of the greatest moments of Jewish history, God told his people to take the blood of slaughtered lambs and to smear that blood on their doorposts so that when the death angels who were sent by God throughout Egypt to judge Pharaoh's hardened heart, when that death angel came by, seeing the blood, that angel would pass over God's people. And that's exactly what happened. By the way, listen to Paul's later on description of Jesus for Christ, our Passover what? Lamb. Have been sacrificed. Did you know this? That in John and Jesus' day, every morning and every evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple on behalf of the people of God to cover their sins for that day. In Psalm 32, verse 1, we see this played out. Blessed is he whose transgression or sin is forgiven, whose sin is, watch this, is covered. How was their sin covered? By the blood of lambs. That's how their sin was covered before Jesus. You see, John's description, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Really, his description of Jesus was giving his disciples and us a picture of what Jesus came to do. For Jesus was the Lamb of God who through the cross and by his death would take away all of our sins. Listen to this, 700 years before Jesus came, it was said of him, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a what? A lamb to the slaughter. For you, and for me. I heard the pastor tell the story of a tourist who visited a well-known church in Verdun, Germany. He was surprised, this tourist was, as he looked to the top of that beautiful church and saw a carved figure of a lamb near the top of the church's tower. He began to ask around, and he asked, why is that that carved lamb, why is it there? And someone shared with him the true story why it was there. You see, as that church was being built, a workman high atop a scaffold lost his footing and he fell. His co-workers after that, that worker had fallen to the ground, his co-workers rushed down off of that scaffolding expecting to find him dead, but to their surprise, he, he was alive. But how, how did he survive such a fall? You see, at the time where he lost his footing, a flock of sheep were passing beneath the tower. And it was discovered that he had landed on top of a lamb. You see, that Lamb broke his fall, but also that lamb was crushed to death. But the man was saved. To commemorate, by the way, a true story, that miraculous escape, someone carved a lamb atop the tower of the church from the exact height from which that workman fell. Church this morning, I know a man whose fall was broken by a lamb too. 
and that's me. In fact, I know the lamb who broke my fall and in the process was crushed to death. You see, that that crushed lamb is Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he broke my fall and was crushed to death on the cross so that I might live and so that you might live too. And so with John's words and his works, I do the very same with my words and my work this morning. Hey, church, look. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray together, can we? Zach and our team are just going to come up and sing just a little bit more of the goodness of God. Believer, our faith must be greater than just a moment on a Sunday morning and must be visible and evident in our words and in our work. We, we see that in John the Baptist, more of Jesus and less of me. Hey, I'm going to be honest with you, for two weeks in a row, we've been talking through this, this formula John the Baptist had for greatness. Why? Because, man, here's the deal. As a church and as a believer, I want to attain such greatness. Not that I'm the goat or the greatest of all time, but that Jesus can be great in me and Jesus can be great through me. And I'm going to tell you where that's evident the most. In our words and in our work. How you doing? What picture of Jesus do your words paint? Not just Sunday in church. We give you the words to sing, right? How about when you're angry? How about when you're fearful? Hey, how about when you're hurting? Better yet, how about when you're engaging a world that is lost and apart from Christ? Can they see through your words that it's, it's more of Jesus and less of Anthony? Less of Mandan? Less of Austin? Less of Tony? Less of Jeff? Can, can, they, can they see it? Can they hear it in your words? How about this in your work? As a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, as a child. How about the work that God's called you to do in the life of this community or within your home? Is it evident there? It's more Jesus and less of me. And here's what I want us to do. As as we're going to stand and sing in just a moment of the goodness of God just one last time. In a couple of courses. My prayer is this that his goodness and his greatness is not only evident here today at this time, but in every facet and every arena of your life, every relationship with you have. And so if there are areas where your words and, and your work, man, it's it's more of you and less than Jesus than right now. Confess it. Ask his forgiveness and move forward in greatness. More of Jesus and less of me.
Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.